the History Channel original podcast. History This Week, October 22nd, 1975. I'm Sally Helm. The spacecraft has already traveled 186 million miles, but it's only just reached its destination. Finally, today, its unmanned lander plunges down into the hot, harsh atmosphere of the planet Venus. The Nera 9 is a probe sent out by the Soviet Union to explore Earth's closest neighbor. In fact, The goal is to do something that's never been done before. Take a photograph of another planet's surface and send it home. This is no simple task. It's quite possible that Venera 9 will have traveled those millions of miles in vain. That it'll burn up in the atmosphere or crash to bits on the surface and go dark, unable to send anything back to the human beings who have so hopefully launched it into space. Here's what it has to do travel through the thick, swirling clouds of sulfuric acid that make up the Venusian atmosphere, deploy one parachute, then a cluster of three more, jettison its heat shield, travel 20 minutes through Venus's sky, and finally crash down, fast but controlled. Venera 9 does all that and then opens its eyes. What it sees there, we can see too, thanks to the cameras the probe used to photograph its surroundings. And its surroundings look kind of like Earth. The probe has landed in some rocky spot that, at least to the untrained eye, could be in the dry highlands of Ethiopia or somewhere in the mountainous American West. The rocks are pointy in some places, smooth in others, like they've been eroded away. When scientists get to see these photos, that erosion will get them really excited. Because what have the rocks been eroded by? Not running water. There isn't any of that on Venus. Probably not fast winds. As far as they knew then, the winds on Venus seemed relatively slow. One theory? It might have to do with how hot Venus is. A whopping 900 degrees Fahrenheit possibly hot enough to melt some of these rocks. Because Venus is both like Earth and not like Earth. Many call it our twin planet. But given the punishing temperatures and the swirling sulfuric clouds, it is, if anything, our evil twin. Today, humanity travels to Venus. What's behind the ancient fascination with the so-called morning star, the brightest planet in our sky? And what can the differences between the twins, Earth and Venus, teach us about our home planet, its present, and its possible future? Hold up. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. David Grinspoon is an astrobiologist and planetary scientist. He loves Venus. But like many people, his fascination with outer space started with the moon. I mean, it'll sound cliche, but it's the absolute truth, which is that I'm a child of Apollo. Literally, some of my earliest memories are watching moon landings. And the Apollo 11 mission in particular... The eagle has landed. When Neil and Buzz stepped onto the surface of the moon... That's one small step for man... I was there watching on the little grainy black and white TV along with billions around the world. One giant leap for mankind. As an impressionable fourth grader, that just blew my mind. Next to the moon and Mars, Venus can seem like a forgotten step-sibling. But, Greenspoon told us, this planet might actually have answers to some of the biggest questions facing our own because it's in many ways so similar to Earth. Not a step-sibling at all. Something closer. You call Venus our mysterious twin planet, and I myself am a fraternal twin, so I feel like the word twin really carries a lot for me. Yeah, well, I have I have uh, two uh, twin brothers as well. Not, really? I'm, I'm not a twin, but my two brothers are fraternal twins, and so oh twins fraternal. are... fraternal. Oh, you know. I love a fraternal twin. Identical <laughs> twins, are, I think, you know, they get so much attention. Yeah, exactly. don't get enough. Not to get too far away from Venus, but this is a favorite hobby horse of mine. So after it came up with David Grinspoon, I called someone who I knew would understand. My main complaint about being a fraternal twin is that when you say you're a twin and then you tell people you're fraternal, they look a little disappointed. This is my twin sister, Eliza. They always just look a little crestfallen. Totally. And it's like, I'm sorry. I made no promises. I've thought a lot about how everyone loves identical twins with their identical little pigtails and their identical little outfits. But my sister and I don't look alike. I have brown hair. She has red hair. My hair is curly. Her hair is straight. You are 5'4", and I'm 5'8". I always say you're 5'7". Yeah, bro, I'm 5'8". Don't take that (laughs) little inch away from me. I'm 5'8". There is one group of people that appreciates twins like us. Scientists. By studying sets of twins, scientists can learn a lot about what makes people the way we are. Is it nature or nurture? Which is not just a question for humans. It is also a question for planets. My sister and I were actually subjects in a twin study. What do you remember about the twin study that we were in together? I remember playing Bop It Mm -hmm. and having them study how well we played together. We went into the lab every few years to do things like complete mazes 
answer long questionnaires, have our brain activity measured with a special cap. We had to play a spacecraft game. We did? Do you remember that? Oh my God. Yeah, there was like a little, um, oh my gosh, was was this from a dream? Um, <laughs> there was a little spacecraft and you had to boo, 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 like shoot things. I mean, it's very topical because we're talking about Venus. I don't remember doing it at the twin study, but I also could just not remember. Maybe they only gave it to me because I'm advanced. When my sister and I were playing computer games and watching movies in the lab, scientists were trying to answer questions about why people are the way they are. And scientists who study space have the same curiosity about planets. You know, we don't get controlled experiments in planetary science. We don't just say, well, this is my idea. I'm going to test it by setting up this other planet and waiting four billion years and seeing what happens. But Venus is almost like that. Venus offers the chance for a planetary twin study. Venus and Earth, as far as we know, were born at the same time and basically the same size and nearby in the solar system. So they were probably made out of the same original mix of stuff. And yet, clearly, they've diverged and their life experiences, if you will, have, have brought out different personalities and different pathways. For example, Earth was struck by another planet when it was very young. The material that broke off from that impact would become our moon. So in addition to Venus being closer to the sun, Earth had this, you know, this trauma, this near-death experience when it was young. As far as we know, Venus didn't have. This is the kind of thing that modern scientists like Grinspoon can study. For ancient astronomers, that kind of twin study was unimaginable. But that's not to say that ancient astronomers were clueless. Probably the most adept and committed Venus observers of all time, the Mayan astronomer priests knew more about Venus than a lot of modern astronomers do today. Astronomer priests. In ancient Mesoamerica, stars could be sacred. Just that phrase, astronomer priests, carries, I think, the sense that this activity that we think of as observing the sky was an intimate part of the religious life of the community. Unfortunately, we, we astronomers carry, a, you know, less status than, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. than the astronomers did then. <laughs> when those astronomer priests looked up at the sky, their attention naturally settled on Venus. Venus is very striking in the sky. It's the brightest thing in the night sky other than the full moon. So it really stands out. And it also behaves in this unusual manner. Venus is fickle. It doesn't stay in one place in the sky. One name for it is evening star. It appears around sunset each night and then moves up higher and higher for months until it vanishes. About a week later, it reappears, but not at nightfall. This time, it comes out just before sunrise. That Venus we call Morning Star. Again, it moves up and up towards the sun and then disappears. In fact, some of the ancients didn't know that they were the same object. They had a different name for Morning Star and Evening Star. Ancient astronomers knew these are very strange stars. They don't stay fixed in place. They move around. So they earn the name planets. The word planet means wanderer. 
those Mayan astronomers had stories about Venus in particular, why it went up and down like that in the sky, why it sometimes disappeared. Venus was a conquering dude with a spear who went down into the underworld repeatedly to Mm. do battle against the enemies of humankind and make the world safe for humanity. We Earthlings have long projected stories onto the parts of the cosmos we can see. That's not a random string of stars. That's the belt of a mighty hunter. That's not just the moon. It's a being protecting humans. We made the cosmos about us, imagining ourselves at the center of things. We think of that now as a sort of naive, how could you think such a thing? Because we all were told when we were young that it's not that way. But it's actually a pretty sensible thing to think. You're born on this planet and you see these other things way up there in the sky moving around. And observe from Earth, the sun is this thing that moves across the sky. So it's a very pervasive and effective illusion that there's this dome out there that everything else is moving on and that this is... This is the center. Um, And it has like a religious aspect too, right? Yeah, absolutely. So in sort of every belief system there was, the earth was, for understandable reasons, a sort of special place in the universe. And that carried right up through the monotheistic religions and so forth. Uh, You know, God created the earth and this other stuff, (laughs) you know, but it's Mm -hmm. it's in a different category. This perfectly sensible belief that the Earth, our home, is at the center of whatever is out there in the universe, it lasts up through the early 1500s. It is something nearly everyone knows, from the sailor to the tailor, from the dons at Oxford to the wise men in the court of Kublai Khan. But then, along comes an astronomer named Nicholas Copernicus, from what's now Poland. Copernicus combines his observations of the planets with some inspired math to propose that, actually, it's the sun that's at the center of things, not the Earth. You could say the idea is ahead of its time. It's like, you know, you're walking down the street and there's some crazy-seeming person handing out pamphlets saying, the Earth is hollow and there's lizard people underneath. Just one of those nutty ideas. How do people react? What's the... It's a shocking idea. Well, it was shocking, but it was also sort of sacrilegious. And that's why it wasn't just like, oh, here's this guy with this weird idea. Let's ignore him or make fun of him. It was offensive because Mm -hmm. we've been taught God created the universe for us in a certain way. And you're saying that's all completely wrong. You know, that's disturbing. The idea is not entirely dismissed, but it doesn't become common knowledge either. The theory kind of goes into hibernation until it's revived a century later by an Italian astronomer named Galileo Galilei. Galileo ushers in a new era when he straps an eyeglass lens to the end of an organ pipe. So Galileo was the first person to use a telescope to study the sky as far as we know. He did not invent the telescope, but he was an early adopter. And he made observations that were incompatible with this picture of Earth being the center of everything. When Galileo points his homemade telescope skyward, he notices a few important things. Two in particular relate to the big name in this episode, if you will, its planetary star, Venus. One is simply that Venus gets larger and smaller in apparent size. You can tell it's moving 
closer to us and farther from us at times. But then the other one was that Venus has phases. Just like the moon has phases, it can be a crescent or nearly full. If Venus has phases, he realizes, it's being illuminated by something. Something that isn't the Earth. And the angle of the light keeps changing. Galileo also notices that when Venus is a crescent, it's bigger, closer to us. And when it's a whole circle, it's tiny, far, far away. And he has a realization. The only time you can see it as nearly full is when it's on the other side of the sun. What that means is Venus appears bright and small when it is farther away from us than the sun is. And the sun is shining directly on the part of Venus that we can see. When Venus is closer to us than the sun is, Venus seems larger and it's lit along one edge in the shape of a crescent. That's because the sun is at an indirect angle to the part of Venus that we can see. Picture it this way. You and a friend stand facing each other on opposite sides of a room. There's a light bulb in the middle. You can see each other's faces. They're fully illuminated. But as your friend walks towards you past the light bulb, their face enlarges in your vision. And at the same time, a shadow starts to cover their face until only a sliver on the side of it is lit. Galileo observes that Venus is like that friend, moving both toward and away from us. Sometimes Venus is nearer to us than the light bulb slash sun is, and sometimes it's further away. In a flash of insight, this confirms for him the truth. Earth isn't the center of the solar system. The sun is. Venus and the Earth are planets in its orbit. Galileo put all that together and he said, you know, Copernicus is right. (laughs) Case closed. Scientific truth prevails. Except... He got into a lot of trouble because he said that. (laughs) The Catholic Church forces Galileo to appear before an ecclesiastical court. There, coerced, he confesses that he sinned. He recants his beliefs. And in return, his life is spared. But there's still a price to pay. He's placed under villa arrest for the remainder of his life. The authorities still feel that the idea of the sun being the center of the universe, not the earth, it's too disruptive. They can't allow it to get out. But in the years that follow, more people start pointing their telescopes up at the sky. The evidence that we're orbiting the sun mounts and mounts. And eventually, people can't pretend anymore. Galileo is ultimately vindicated, although the church doesn't officially admit he's right until 1992. Long before that, though, it's clear that Earth is just one planet among countless others. But we still saw ourselves as kind of the template. The tendency actually for a long time post-Galileo was to think of the other planets as much more Earth-like than they actually are. Venus was a great example. There was even this idea that it was maybe a sort of more tropical version of Earth. Because, Mm. well, yeah, it's like Earth. It's got clouds, it's got water, but it's a little closer to the sun, so it's probably hot and steamy and swampy. And there are papers where people said, well, Venus is probably dripping wet and full of, like, jungle life. It's probably like a big jungle planet. 
Venus is covered in a layer of clouds, so you can't actually see its features, even using a good telescope. But some astronomers still convince themselves that they can tell what's going on beneath the clouds. There are these sort of dusky markings, which we now know are features in the clouds, but people Mm. did map them and were pretty certain they saw features on the surface. In fact, Percival Lowell, who's famous for mapping the canals of Mars, of course, which had the world convinced for a long time, and then they turn out not to be there. He also mapped canals on Venus. There was this sort of wishful thinking that we were figuring things out that we really didn't have the information to actually figure out. Then comes the end of World War II, and the decision by the world's two superpowers, the United States and the Soviet Union, that it is time for humans to rocket up away from Earth and take a real look around. Journalists call it the space race. The first step toward the conquest of space. Whether we like it or not, it's warfare that causes a lot of the big technological leaps. And World War II led famously to the development of rocketry, ultimately to launch to the moon and to other places in the solar system. The U.S. and the Soviet Union, once allies, are now in a race, each trying to prove their own power. Soviet Russia scores a dramatic victory in the exploration of space. Each country wants its scientists to understand the universe better and first. As an American, I am, of course, uh, proud of the effort that a great many scientists and engineers and technicians have made of all of the astronauts. I'll let you guess which planet becomes a key part of that race. Venus. Venus. Venus was the first place we ever sent a spacecraft beyond the Earth-Moon system, successfully. As man learned more about the Earth and near space, he sought to know about his neighbors in the solar system. And and this was a spacecraft called Mariner 2 that launched in 1961. Venus made sense as the first target because it's actually the easiest place to get to in the solar system in terms of just how much oomph you have to give a rocket. Venus is the closest place in the solar system to get to. And that first mission to Venus, Mariner 2, was really revelatory. Remember, before Mariner 2, there was this vision of Venus as a big jungle planet. Maybe it has canals. Maybe it's sort of an extra marshy version of Earth with, who knows, swamp creatures swimming around everywhere. But there's an aspect of Venus's atmosphere that doesn't seem to fit this picture. Scientists have been struggling to understand it. There had been hints that Venus had some microwave radiation, which is just shortwave radio radiation, coming off it too much. It didn't make sense. And there was one idea, it must mean that it's really, really hot on Venus, like ridiculously hot, much, much, much hotter than Earth. That would be making this microwave radiation. But people didn't want to accept that. Because they want that, like, tropical situation with the cool, weird animals. Exactly. They wanted the tropical, friendly Venus. Mariner 2 is determined to find out what's going on. Mariner 2 had one scientific instrument called a microwave radiometer that was designed to figure out where that anomalous radiation was coming from. And boom, it's coming from the surface. Nearing Venus, our spacecraft reported the atmosphere to be very dense, the surface hot enough to melt lead. It sort of dissipated that whole idea of Venus as an Earth-like place because it proved that Venus is really, really hot on the surface. Venus is hot. That was the big take-home from our first ever experiment at another planet. It was Venus is hot. When Grinspoon says hot, he means 
almost 900 degrees Fahrenheit. He writes in his book, that's hot enough to fry an egg on the sidewalk if you did it extremely quickly before the sidewalk melted away. It's so hot that it cannot have liquid water on the surface. It cannot have life on the surface. And the New York Times had an editorial about it a few days after those results were returned. And the headline was, Venus says no. These investigations told scientists that on Venus, there is little likelihood of life as we know it. So it was seen as this big bummer. (laughs) We finally get to another planet and we finally get results and it's like, oh no, it's awful there. (laughs) Yeah, it's awful there. I mean, paint that picture for me. We've imagined the tropical planet now that we have this new information from Mariner 2. Like, are we imagining lava? Does it look like hell? The word hell came up (laughs) because uh, it was so hot. It wasn't hot enough to literally have the surface be just full of lava, like to just melt rock. But it was way too hot for liquid water. Imagine Earth if you got rid of all the water and all the vegetation and all the life, what would be left? And that's how you at least start to imagine Venus. But despite the disappointing news it brought back, Mariner 2 expands the space race into the solar system. In the coming years, both the U.S. and the Soviet Union send a series of missions to Venus breaking all sorts of space travel records. There's the Soviet Union's Venera 4. The first entry probes down into the atmosphere. Venera 9 and 10. They photograph the surface. There are these sort of eroded-looking, platy rocks that look kind of like ancient volcanic flows. And the more we learn about Venus, the more it defies our expectations for what our twin planet should be. The clouds are made out of concentrated sulfuric acid, basically battery acid. It would burn your hand to reach out into the Venus clouds. The winds are very, very strong Um, at the cloud level. The whole atmosphere whips around the planet in just four days. It's a whirling battery acid situation. It it doesn't sound good. It's a (laughs) whirling battery acid situation, yes. It is also covered in volcanoes. Venus is like volcano world. And those volcanoes might be actively releasing gases into the Venusian atmosphere. Almost like on Earth, you know, you have like the carbon cycle and the nitrogen cycle, this sort of active cycling of chemicals. We think something like that's going on on Venus where you probably have a sulfur cycle. Wow, it so is bizarro Earth. Like instead of a nice oxygen cycle that you can breathe, it's a sulfur cycle, the one that smells bad. Right. Again and again, Venus like showed us how much it did not conform to our early fantasies of an Earth-like clement place. Okay, so if you're a billionaire thinking about building a weekend home on Venus... Venus says no. But Venus still matters to Earth. A lot. Remember, she is supposed to be our twin. Which raises a couple of questions. How did we turn out the way we did? And how did Venus turn out so different? Followed by a couple more questions. If we keep going the way we're going... Might we one day end up like Venus? Might our own planet become a place where you can boil an egg on a burning sulfuric sidewalk? Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? 
helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. When I called my twin sister, Eliza, I told her about Venus, about the 900-degree temperatures, about the whirling battery acid atmosphere, about the sulfur. So this is the evil twin. Well, yeah. But, but we can't sad. think of it that way because the next question that I wanted to ask is, um, which of us is Earth and which is Venus? <laughs> well, huh. hmm. obviously, <laughs> I'm Earth. <laughs> obviously, I'm Earth. <laughs> no, I think, you, I think you're Earth. I think you're Earth. I think I am more blustery and I'm more likely to get excited and also angry and experience all of the emotions. Yeah, you know, I hate to say it, but I actually, I also think you're Venus. Why do you think I'm Venus? I think it's what you're saying. Like, I feel like yeah. you're like more hot-tempered. Your emotions run hotter in general. Mm-hmm. I'm more like, you know, whatever, oceans, you know? I also feel like, like, if you cross me, battery yeah. acid. Exactly. You know, like... <laughs> also, like, you have red hair, you know? And Venus is very hot. That's right. Yeah, I mean, and there's a whole thing about redheads and, like, being fiery and whatever, which nature or nurture, who knows? Well, that's actually my next question. Nature or nurture? What do you think? Yeah. I took a psychology class in college that was essentially helping me on my quest to answer this question. Mm. Um, And the answer that I came away from the class with was, it's both. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I know, I know. If I sound disappointed, it's because I am, a little. When it comes to humans, everything really is a complicated mix of nature and nurture. The way we're made and the environments and influences we grow up with. Even with the help of twin studies, it's really hard to tease all that apart. But maybe it's easier with planets? Nature versus nurture. It doesn't literally map onto planets in the sense that planets don't have DNA and haven't gone through natural selection. David Grinspoon again, bringing us down to Earth. Or, I guess, away from it. But you can ask, what is it about planets that is set in stone at their birth? And what are the external forces that can change the way a planet evolves. So how did Venus get so hot? Was it always that way? Part of the answer lies in Venus's atmosphere. They realized it must have to do with an extreme greenhouse effect. The greenhouse effect. You might have heard of it. It's an atmospheric process that happens not just on Venus, but also on Earth. Mariner 2 and other missions have found that Venus's atmosphere is made up mostly of carbon dioxide, which is a greenhouse gas, meaning it absorbs and traps heat. Carbon dioxide in Earth's atmosphere is creating this effect right now. The Earth is warming. 
And what does Venus tell us about a warming process that spirals out of control? If we look at what we think happened to Venus, the water starts to evaporate because of of all that sunlight. Because it's closer to the sun. But that means there's more water vapor in the atmosphere. Well, water vapor itself is a greenhouse gas. So that makes the surface hotter, which causes more evaporation, which means there's more water vapor in the air, which causes more evaporation because it's hotter. And that's what we call the runaway greenhouse. And ultimately, it means the oceans boil off. Wow. So it's kind of like Earth's dark future. Yeah, showing. yeah. No, I mean, there, there's something to that. Grinspoon says it would likely take billions of years for the sun to get hot enough for this to happen on Earth. But we're releasing more carbon dioxide into the atmosphere every day, creating our own greenhouse effect. So... Venus is still very relevant to the question of human-caused climate change on Earth because it turns out it's a natural laboratory for us to study climate change. We're collecting data so that maybe we can learn from another planet's mistakes. Well, I mean, actually, planets aren't people and they don't make mistakes, but we can use Venus to study our mistakes. It's clear that human activity is contributing to Earth's warming, led by the greenhouse effect from pumping carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. And that's making Earth a little bit more like Venus every day. It's no longer just curiosity to want to understand how Earth-like planets work and how their climates change. That's a survival skill for humanity now. And there is so much to learn about our twin. The United States has not had a dedicated Venus mission since Magellan was launched in 1989. And that's literally my whole career. But that is about to change. NASA has greenlit two missions to Venus in the next decade. One called Veritas, and the other, which Grinspoon is working on, called Da Vinci. The European Space Agency has planned a third. Russia has even proposed another Venera mission. Scientists are hailing it as the Decade of Venus. These missions might answer questions like, was there once liquid water on Venus? Was there once life killed off by an increasingly inhospitable climate? Could there still be life up there in Venus's more temperate clouds? David Grinspoon says, nothing's off the table. If Venus was Earth-like through much of its history, these planets could have even have been exchanging material. So we could even have Venusian relatives. We could even be Venusian. The origin of Earth-like could have come from Venus. So you, me, Eliza, every other Earthling, the possibility that we're part Venusian is greater than zero. All the more reason that in this new decade of Venus, we're like those ancient astronomer priests. We've set our sights on the planets to make sense of our world and even ourselves. The question of who we are and what we're doing here in the universe is uh, about the closest I as a scientist come to (laughs) defining spirituality. Thanks for listening to History This Week. For more moments throughout history that are also worth watching, check your local TV listings to find out what's on the History Channel today. If you want to get in touch, please shoot us an email at our email address, historythisweekathistory.com, or you can leave us a voicemail, 212-351-0410. Please reach out. We really love hearing from you with episode ideas, with thoughts about the episodes we've already done. Get in touch. Thanks today to our guest, David Grinspoon, author of Venus Revealed, a new look below the clouds of our mysterious twin planet. 
Grinspoon's latest book is called Earth in Human Hands, Shaping Our Planet's Future. Thanks also to my twin sister, Eliza Helm. This episode was produced by Julia Press. It was story edited by Jim O'Grady and sound designed by Brian Flood. History This Week is also produced by Morgan Givens, Rebecca Nolan, and me, Sally Helm. Our associate producer is Emma Fredericks. Our senior producer is Ben Dickstein. Our supervising producer is McKamey Lynn. And our executive producer is Jesse Katz. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review History This Week wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll see you next week. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.